Global Connections Television is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. We invite you to go to the website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous shows. If you're involved with a PBS or community access television station or an educational institution that has an intra-campus television hookup, or perhaps a podcast or just a computer and would like to share the programs, please feel free to do so. Global Connections is provided at no cost to help people in the U.S. and worldwide better understand how international issues impact our lives. Welcome to today's Global Connections program. I'm Bill Miller. Today, we're going to take a look at the highlights of the 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly. Our guest today is an expert on the UN and on many international issues. Our guest today is Stephen Schlesinger. Steve Schlesinger is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York City. Mr. Schlesinger authored Active Creation, Founding of the United Nations. He is also an expert on the UN and a wide range of international issues. Steve Schlesinger, welcome to today's Global Connections program. Thank you. I appreciate you being with me. We did this about five or six months ago, but there's so much going on at the UN. We could probably do it about every five or six days, it seems like. But before I get into the 78th session of the General Assembly, I mentioned your book, and you wrote that book 20 plus years ago, I guess it was. How, just generally, you know, a sentence or two or three, how has the generalist or how has the UN changed from 1945 when it was created in San Francisco, California on June 26th to up to the time you wrote the book up to today? Well, it's changed in many ways, and yet it remains almost the same as it was in 1945 as far as the structural features go. Um, the main change is that it's broadened its ambit. It now has agencies that cover all sorts of issues that were not even thought about back in 1945, whether it's refugees or, or the issue of climate or, or economic development, you know, agencies which are specified. UNESCO obviously deals with great ruins of the past and, and trying to keep them alive, keep them in a way that they can be visited and 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 taken photographs of and made part of our re regular lives. So in many ways, the UN is addressing issues that don't otherwise get dealt with by any other organization. And so that's the one thing that has expanded terrifically over the years. But the actual structural features have not changed, which means that there are only five nations right now that have the veto power in the Security Council. And here it's been 78 years later, no no change in that at all. Those five nations still have the veto and they still basically control the operational uh, part of, of the UN as far as uh, military intervention or other kinds of intervention around the globe is concerned. I'm glad you mentioned that about the Security Council. That takes us right into it. Before we get to that, I want to mention your website at www.stevenslesinger.com. So our viewers can go to that for more information. But I'm so glad you mentioned that about the Security Council because that's the most powerful arm of the six organs of the United Nations. And it is the way it was constructed out of the ashes of World War II in 1945 when the five victors, the old Soviet Union, the U.S., China, the U.K., 
and France basically set the ground rules and said they would keep peace in the world. And then all of a sudden the Cold War began and it didn't work that way. So here we are today and the whole UN machinery, the services it provides are absolutely vital. They're absolutely indispensable to people in the United States and around the world. But the machinery of the UN really needs to be reformed. Even Secretary General Guterres and others have said that. How can they how can they move forward on it? Do they have to have the leadership of the five permanent members of the, the Security Council or what? Well, that is the sticking point. The five uh, permanent members, all of whom have the veto, can veto any changes. So unless they're on board, you can't really reform the Security Council. Now, President Biden in his speech last this recent uh, opening of the General Assembly said that he's in favor of expanding possibly the number of uh, permanent members on the Security Council. And other nations, uh, France and Great Britain in particular, even uh, Russia at one point, have said that they have one or two countries they'd like to see become part of the permanent membership on on the uh, on the Security Council. But that never happens because uh, you will have to have that agreement of all five nations and no, n- n- none of that five coterie of nations is ever agreeing on a on the kind of change that they particularly want. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, and I've been watching this for years, I don't really see reform coming in any time soon. Uh, and I think that that's a feature that the UN is just going to have to accept. They're going to... The, the nations of the of the world who really want change are going to have to work around the Security Council to get it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Guterres, the Secretary General, was really reading the Riot Act to the leaders of the world on several occasions uh, within the last couple of weeks, talking about how they have failed to come together to deal with climate change. They're failing to come together to deal with the immigration issue. They're failing to come together to really work at promoting peace. And here we see that the countries are going out here and spending more and more money on arms. And that is certainly not the way to go. Now, you have to be you have to be well defended. You have to protect your people, that type of thing. But to think we're going to militarily solve our problems is sheer folly, isn't it? It certainly is. And, and you know, the when the U.N. was set up, they also set up the Economic and Social Council, which is a part of the uh, U.N. structure. And that was supposed to deal with economic issues that. You know, many, many failures of society due to re- recessions or depressions lead to war. So the notion was if you can stabilize the economy around the world, you're not going to have as many wars anymore. And the UN has tried to work on that area. And in fact, the sustainable development goals, which are designed to produce uh, an end of extreme poverty by the year 2030, are a part of this campaign to um, eliminate the causes of war. And that's faltering too. So the UN has a real responsibility along those lines, but not just, of course, on the economic side. It does have to deal with the military side too. And that is where peacekeeping and negotiating and bring together disputed parties around uh, a settlement is also a role for the UN to play. And it has had only a very... um, it's had a very difficult role. Sometimes it's been able to settle conflicts, but often, as a, an example of Ukraine, it's it's almost been on the sidelines. 
That's a very good point. It's often been said that the success of the UN depends upon the member states, especially the larger developed states who have more money and that type of thing who could help out with the, with the programs. But you're right. Ukraine, the Security Council, has been almost paralyzed totally. There was a brief glimmer of hope at one point with one or two resolutions calling for peace in Ukraine. But the Security Council was paralyzed because of the Russian veto. But then you had that whole UN system that was working to help the Ukrainians. You had the UN High Commission for Refugees, the World Food Program, UN Children's Fund. It's on across the board. They were on the ground working every day in a war zone to help the Ukrainians. So it's it's almost a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde type of situation. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, in fact, all the agencies you mentioned are still there working on behalf of of the uh, casualties of that war. But the, but the prime issue, which is creating conditions for a peaceful settlement, are just not uh, reached. And until the two parties agree themselves that they want a, a uh, settlement, the UN really can't do anything about the situation. Exactly. Well, one of the other issues that's finally getting some publicity, it should have gotten it 20 years ago or 25, 30 years ago, is the climate crisis. And Secretary General Guterres has said, you know, it's not climate warming, it's climate boiling. And we've seen the hottest year again, it keeps going up. We're not going down. Every, every year it gets hotter than the year before. And he really was just, as I saw it, just lambasting the leaders of the world for not doing enough. They're doing something, but it's just not enough. And Pope Francis said the world is on the point of disintegration almost. So they, they've got to come together. And the UN did have a special climate conference. And it was interesting that they didn't invite the US or Russia or so many of the other groups that talk about it and haven't done enough maybe in this area. And I know the U.S. has with the with the recent IRA legislation and that type of thing. We're moving quickly in many states to move to electric vehicles and what have you. But the uh, they had people on the agenda who were really, I guess, acknowledged for having accomplished so much. I know Governor uh, Gavin Newsom from California was one of the guest speakers because California has done so much to focus on climate change. But do you think this will help turn it around? Well, I think it's terribly important that the, that the Biden administration proposed the Inflation Reduction Act because that was the first time the U.S. has actually invested in, in, in efforts to um, control the whole climate situation. And that is a breakthrough for the for an, an American government. Now, it may be that this will encourage other nations, particularly China, which is one of the great uh, contributors to the sort of polluted situation we're all in, uh, to themselves in, in, enhance their efforts to con con control global warming. Um, but it's been a very slow process, and I can understand the frustration that the Secretary General Guterres has and I will say, you know, he has three more years left on his 10-year term. He obviously wants to make this the centerpiece of his legacy as secretary general. So it, well, quite rightly, he's focused 
in those final years in office on making as big an effort as possible to persuade the leading nations of the globe to come to come an agreement that will, if not reduce in 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 every particular point that they want a reduction, but at least start the process. I think that is one of the legacies he's critically involved in. And hopefully will ha- that combined with what the U.S. has done will have a broad-based impact around the world. You, you were talking a minute ago about the role of the Security Council in maintaining peace and security in the world. And it's absolutely critical that it do it does that and it has been successful in some areas what what do you what do you view as some of the more successful areas of the UN and some of the setbacks we we talked about the setback in Ukraine with uh, the veto situation and that's just the structure of the UN you can't you can't change the building <laughs> overnight you've got to have the you know the owner of the building or the owners an agreement to change it well, I think it's fair to say that the UN uh, has has settled a lot of crises throughout its 78-year hi- history. Um, it was involved in in bringing the Korean War to an end back in the night in 1950-51. During the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s, it helped settle was probably the most dangerous uh, confrontation that the world has ever experienced because it could have resulted in a nuclear war. Um, there's been settlements in in conflicts in Guatemala and El Salvador and Angola and Cyprus and many many other uh, countries that have small wars that otherwise would would be continuing to this day, and all of them have been have brought the UN in and and the UN has provided the negotiator negotiators and the kind of uh, outline for a settlement that 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 is eventually adopted. So we we shouldn't forget that this is a crucial role that the UN has played. And in fact, the peacekeeping aspect of the uh, UN, where it sends in actual peacekeepers to keep the to keep a settlement uh, intact, uh, didn't wasn't even mentioned in the original UN Charter. And so it shows you, by the way, that of the flexibility of the Charter that allows these new developments to happen. Uh, as the new crisis arises, and and so I'm, that's one of the great strengths of the UN that the Charter has that kind of flexibility. But that that uh, that those successes are belied, of course, by the fact that there are times when it just has not been able to provide the basis of peace. For for example, the war in Syria, the the, the uh, Ukrainian war, uh, what's going on in Burma or, or Myanmar. Uh, and other um, places of conflict around around the globe, and the UN tries its best, but it cannot. It is not a world government. It doesn't have its own military. It doesn't have its own taxing power. It doesn't have its own legislature. It cannot act the way a, a sovereign nation can act, and that that of course is the weakness we have to accept, because that's the only way we can have a world security body. That's exactly right. And until the the powers at the UN change that, that's exactly what we're going to have to deal with. Well, you're watching Global Connections Television, which is a privately funded, independently produced program. The opinions expressed on Global Connections are solely those of the moderator and his guests. 
We invite our viewers to go to our website at www.globalconnectionstelevision.com to view previous programs. Also, if you're involved with a PBS or a community access television station, or perhaps you have a podcast, or you just have a computer, if you like our shows, you would like to share them, please feel free to do so. Global Connections Television is provided at no cost as a public service to help us better understand international issues and how they impact our lives. Today, we're taking a look at some of the really major issues at the United Nations that impact people in other parts of the world and people in the United States. My guest today is an expert on the UN. Stephen Schlesinger is a fellow at the Century Foundation in New York City. He authored the book, Act of Creation, Founding of the United Nations. Steve, we're talking about the the situation with peacekeeping. We, we'll, we'll dwell on that, but that is really a good investment for the U.S. Every I mean, Some of the peacekeeping missions have had soaring success. Others have been set back, to be quite honest. But still, it is far cheaper. It's eight times cheaper for a U.N. peacekeeping mission to go into South Sudan or to Haiti or wherever it might be than it is for the United States to send its military down there. Plus, when the U.N. troops are there, Usually, U.S. troops are not part of that delegation. We help fund it, but we normally don't staff the, the the programs. We did in Kosovo, I remember, but in general. But peacekeeping is really a bargain, is it not? There's no question about it. I mean, just imagine of all the, I don't know, there's about a dozen peacekeeping missions now around the globe involving right. around 75 to 80,000 troops from various uh contributing countries imagine if the u.s had to do that all alone uh, as acting as kind of uh, the global policeman that's something we as a country the united states never wants to do i mean right now we we have uh, we've always had a certain isolationist spirit in this country and that would certainly uh, encourage isolationism by by the united states if we were having to enforce these kind of truces, ceasefires, and, and settlements around the world. And, and therefore, the UN plays a critical role in saving the United States from having to do that and expending American taxpayer dollars in, in that kind of situation. And it also brings the world together because various countries will contribute their own forces to these peacekeeping operations. And that, that embeds them even more directly within the UN. So it was a feeling of of uh, gl- global solidarity when 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 peacekeeping operations take place, and I think it's one of the signal strengths of the UN, and one of the things w- many people admire about the organization. Yes, it certainly is, and uh, the U.S. traditionally has been lagging in its dues to the peacekeeping missions as far as paying its fair share, and so we certainly need to, to look at that. You look talk about peacekeeping too. I, I flash back to the '90s when all the turmoil was going on in Haiti, and the U.S. sent troops into Haiti as a peacekeeping mission. They were there for a short duration, and then they gave the baton to the U.N. Security Council to try to have a U.N. peacekeeping mission, which it did go into Haiti, and it brought stability. There were some problems, no doubt about that, with the, some of the U.N. troops, the Nepalese troops. Uh, uh, it looks like they started a cholera epidemic by mistake. It wasn't done on purpose, but again, there were problems. But here we are back at Haiti again. The gangs are running 80% of Port-au-Prince, the capital, 
And the UN now has apparently just approved a, a resolution to send troops into Haiti. That is true. The troops that they've designated are from Kenya, Kenyan troops. And uh, the problem is that the Kenyan troops may face the same problem that the U.S. face and the previous U.N. Uh, missions face, which is that until you have a political stability in the country, it's very difficult to bring these gangs under control. In other words, if you're going to send in a mission uh, authorized by the UN, it ought to be done in conjunction with making clear that there has to be some sort of political settlement that will bring about a, a fair election, a, a leadership which has legitimacy, and a willingness by these gangs to lay down their arms on the theory, theory that this is something that will be good for not only for them, but for, for the country as a whole. You're not going to get that simply by sending in troops alone. And so I'm hoping when the Kenyan troops do arrive, that there is a, a um, parallel effort to, to solve the political problem, which uh, remains unsolved at this time in, in Haiti. They're definitely going to have to do that. They certainly will. They just can't stay for three years and leave because the same thing will happen. It, exactly. It fails. But so many people argue and say, well, what do we care what happens in other parts of the world? It doesn't affect us. All we have to do is look at the history books. Remember how World War I started with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Think about World War II with a dictator in, in Germany who wanted to dictate over more land and people, that type of thing. These events will impact us. And of course, we can see how climate change brings us right into the whole mix. Well, Steve, before we run out of time, are there any other major issues? I know there are so many others that came out of the UN General Assembly, but we're down to about our last four minutes. So any other that you want to mention at this point? Well, I certainly would want to mention the, the nuclear issue. I, I noticed that uh, Russia is, is now making noises about withdrawing from the test ban treaty which was the famous treaty set, set back in the night, started in the 1960s to, uh, to stop the testing of bombs that spread radiation around the globe. And that's, this would be a severe setback to the whole notion of, of keeping uh, our, our climate and our civilization free from the after effects of, of nuclear explosions. And in addition, of course, we have to have face the fact that in a country like Ukraine, where you have two big powers involved, the United States and Russia, there have been threatened threats to actually use nuclear armaments at some point, particularly on, not on the side of the U.S., but on the side of the Russians. And so, once again, that brings back to the issue of how do we resolve this whole matter of the, 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 the spread of nuclear weapons or the use of them? And here, this the U.N., I can, I believe, can play a central role by reminding the 193 countries that are member members of, of of the organization that they have to start making greater strides in in spreading the virtues of settlements, uh, outlawing either the nuclear weapons or at least confining them to a limited number within within the, within the countries that have them today. So I, I regard that as really. The, one of the most prominent issues that, that the UN has to deal with in the future. It certainly is. There's no doubt about it. And if you look at the whole panoply of UN agencies, agencies and you mentioned it already, they 
impact our lives. They help us achieve many of our foreign policy goals. The World Health Organization helps to keep us safe from epidemics and things like that. You have the UN Children's Fund teaming up with Rotary to Rotary International to eliminate the scourge of polio around the world. The, the UN helps to move aircraft, ships, mail, weather information internationally. Our, our carriers depend upon us, UPS every night, Delta, United. These, these are all services that just don't fall out of the sky. They are provided by the UN, and the UN is a bargain. And as often has been said, it's indispensable. One thing is very unnerving, and we'll mention it. We, we try to always keep politics out of this program, but uh, a recent event on Capitol Hill, a Republican-controlled Congress, for the first time ever, provided zero funding for the United Nations. Now, that's not going to stand, I don't think. But if it did, it would be detrimental to the United States and to the world. It would literally endanger us. But but anyway, in our last minute, Steve, what would you like to convey to our viewers? Well, I certainly you bring up the point of uh, this resistance in the Congress to the UN. I, I, first of all, I want to mention that the United States created the UN, so we have an investment in it. It's it's building central building is here in New York City, where I am. It's been part of our foreign policy under both Democratic and Republican presidents. And uh, to uh, sort of delete the UN from from our foreign policy would be the one of the major disasters of our of of of, of American uh, international involvement. So I, I I do think, though, that this harbors back to the fact that there's been always a movement towards isolationism in this country. And that's one of the great victories we've had over uh, over those kind of people when we joined the UN. And I'm hopeful that we can contain that uh, isolationist feeling in this country by uh, continuing to make sure the UN operates successfully in the future. And it is often said by many foreign policy folks that if we don't participate in the UN or if the UN disappeared, there's a chance we would have, there's probability, not a chance, of a strong possibility we would have another world war. And with the nuclear weapons out there, it will not end well. But Steve Schlesinger, I want to thank you so very much for a very interesting and a very informative program. Thank you so much. I'm Bill Miller. Thank you for joining us today on Global Connections Television. 